In her book, Still, Laura Winner writes, an Episcopal church in a small town in upper New York State asked me to come preach one Sunday. At communion, following the priest who had the bread, I offered the cup to parishioner after parishioner. I noticed that some clasp the cup and guzzle it with what looks like relish. Some are daintier, they're, they're more polite. Some don't touch the chalice to their lips, but do as frankly we do here. They dip the host into the wine and consume the crimsoned host. Winner says, I don't know the people in this congregation. I don't know anything about the triplets that have perfectly matched pink eyeglasses. Uh, I don't know anything about the one-armed man. I don't know anything about the college-age woman who surely shops at thrift stores, today clad in a polyester suit circa 1969. And it's only later that I learned something about the elderly couple who, near the end of the line, come to the rail and kneel, frail as mushrooms. For a dozen years, he's been afflicted with an intestinal disease he can't eat. He's been kept alive on a combination of Ensure and lemonade. But I don't know that yet. I only know what I see, that each take the wafer from the priest, and when I come with the chalice, the wife dips it as I say, the blood of Christ keep you in eternal life, and she eats her wafer. And then her husband likewise intinks his round of Christ's body into the wine, and then he hands the round of the body and blood of Christ to his wife, and she eats the wafer for him an octogenarian husband and wife who are communion, who are the promises of God. What is the story of faith for the couple where the wife eats the elements on behalf of her husband? What do they know about the promises of God that we are yet to learn? What an unpredictable, unlikely group that God gathers around his table. Though Emily Post's first uh, Etica book was it published until 1922. Uh, as I read the Gospels, I think Jesus at least tried to follow the social norms and expectations of his day, only to find that many that he invited to the table were, shall we say, unresponsive. All we know is that by the time we'd reached the 14th chapter of Luke's Gospel, Jesus, who had tried to invite the proper people, Jesus, who had attempted meals with Pharisees, Jesus, who wanted his table open for all, has reached a point where he gives instructions to invite those to the table who feel left out, put down, lost, least, last. In the last verse of our text, which David read, where Jesus says, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of these who are invited will taste my dinner. That last line, for none of those who are invited will taste my dinner, that is not said in the context of the Gospel of Luke as punishment or as retribution or as withholding something. Jesus says that in sadness. Jesus wants everyone, everyone, everyone to share in this feast which has been prepared. We're the ones that usually have trouble with the guest list. Recently, Oren Davinsky wrote in The New Yorker, a year ago, I lost my best friend, Oliver Sacks. 
For many years, each week, Oliver and I would cruise north on the west side bike path at sunrise, alone our bicycles a few inches apart, while we spoke of everything and anything, mostly patience and natural history and food. He looked forward to passing by the 79th Street boat basin, which reminded him of his city island days. There he had a housekeeper who once a week would make a beef stew for him and divide it into seven equal portions, one for each day. One day, he noticed that the portions were beginning to shrink in size. So he said, has the price of beef gone up? I'll, I'll give you more for it. After some give and take, the housekeeper remorsely and, and sheepishly admitted to pilfering some of the stew she could not afford it for herself. Then I'll give you more money for eight pounds instead of four, Oliver Sacks said, and you keep half. A desperate housekeeper pilfering from the owner of the house would not be included in most of our invitations to a formal dinner. That housekeeper's at the top of Jesus' list. What an unlikely collection of people Jesus gathers at his table. Maybe that's why some folks excuse themselves. The excuses in Jesus' parable were good excuses. The invitees turned down the invitation to the banquet were presumably good people doing good work with decent life priorities. It's not, no, I'm just too busy right now. It's no, I need to fit in a spin class or a yoga session. No, it's not, do you understand that two great new shows just dropped on Netflix, I cannot come. It's none of that. These were respectable, responsible, important excuses. The kind of excuses you and I could come up with. The first person had just made a really big investment one that people respected because it was gonna provide security for generations. The second excuse was a little more pretentious. It's the prestige excuse. The guest had just bought 10 oxen. Most farmers of that day barely had two oxen. So the excuse is a bit showy, but you'd probably understand. And then there's the relationship excuse. This is the bulletproof excuse. I just got married. I can't make it. That held as much, if not more, water in Jesus' day than it does today. Notice where the excuses cluster around. Security, prestige, family. Those are the things we build our life on. Security, prestige, and family, that's what takes our energy, our focus, our resources, the very lives we're seeking to make better. Security, prestige, family led to these reasonable excuses. These are not seven deadly sins excuses that kept people from the banquet table, that kept people from experiencing the kingdom of God. The thing that kept people from the banquet were the very things respectable people build their lives on, security, prestige, family. It was people striving to make their own lives better. This is so close to what God wants for us with one exception. God doesn't want us constantly working to make our own lives better. God wants to shape our lives. 
God knows that left to our own devices, we will end up in places where we amuse ourselves, where we delight others, but we will not be plunging into the love and service Jesus expected. God knows that too often in life we settle for the low bar. All the while, God is offering this urgent invitation that God might be the one who forms us and shapes us into who God created us to be. And one of the principal ways God shapes us is by community. Jesus rarely sent people off on an individual quest for meaning. Jesus rarely said, just be introspective and understand yourselves. Jesus shaped all of us through community. And a community that was not just our carefully curated list of neighbors, colleagues, family, friends, or members of like-minded societies, but communities that pull us out of our carefully tended categories, communities that make us listen much more attentively, communities that lead us to put our feet in new places, communities that teach us from unexpected angles the ways of God. A cafe in Israel has been offering a special for the past year, a 50% discount on Arabs and Jews who will dine together. With all the rising and continued unrest in that area, the owner of this cafe in central Israel is attempting to bring people together in that conflict-laden region over hummus. There was a sign that he put up at his restaurant and he posted on his Facebook page, scared of Arabs, scared of Jews. With us, there are no Arabs, but also no Jews. With us, there are only human beings, and really wonderful Arab hummus, and really great Jewish falafel, and free refills on all the hummus dishes if you're Arab, Christian, Jewish, Indian, etc. Special discount, 50% off hummus dishes for a table where Jews and Arabs are eating together, offer valid Sundays through Thursdays. (laughs) To be all in with God means being all in in the unlikely community God forms. Which is good news when we get to learn faith from the poor and the blind and the lame. It is better news, it is great news when we are, for any life circumstance, the poor, the blind, the lame. Jesus presses this idea of community throughout the whole of the Gospels, In Wendell Berry's novel, Jabber Crow, the narrator and title character offers the most honest and moving vision of a church I've ever read. Berry writes, what I saw was a community, imperfect and irresolute, but held together by the frayed and always fraying, incomplete, yet ever holding bonds of affection. In that church, there had never been anybody who had not been loved by somebody, who'd been loved by somebody, who'd been loved by somebody, and on and on and on. It was a community always disappointed in itself, always failing, and yet always preserving a sort of will toward goodwill. I saw them all as somehow perfected beyond time by another's love, another's compassion, another's forgiveness. As it is said, we may be perfected by grace. Jesus knew community was the urgent task, 
Not the optional task. Not that we'll get to it when we get to it. Not the icing on the cake task. Community was the urgent task for everyone who followed him because community formed around Jesus could change the world. On February 1st, 1960, Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, Ezel Blair, and David Richmond Four freshmen at North Carolina A&T University sat down at a lunch counter in a Woolworth store on South Elm Street in Greensboro, North Carolina, and ordered coffee. They were denied service and told to leave. They continued to sit at the counter. The store manager appeared, threatened to call the police. He said, I'll die before I serve you guys because this is the way things are in the South, and this is the way we're going to do it. We're not going to integrate this counter. Those four young men stayed at that counter until the store closed, and then they were there bright and early the next morning when they opened and sat there again. Their refusal to submit to the order of the day began a revolution over a dining table. John Buchanan observes, their quiet act of sitting down at a lunch counter challenged injustice in the most eloquent and powerful way possible. The four young men didn't make any fiery speeches or outrageous actions. They simply sat down to eat and ordered coffee and donuts. They ate together in the midst of others, an unlikely table gathered in the kingdom of God This happens all the time in the Gospels. Jesus comes to town, invites people to eat together, and the world is changed. Urgency. Urgency. The Gospels lift up to us the urgency of being community, not optional, not we'll get to it when we get to it. Those good excuses in the parable were bad excuses because they did not recognize the urgency of God's invitation into community. Security, prestige, family, they can wait. The kingdom of God can never wait. We're doing a lot in worship today, if you haven't already noticed. We've already dedicated pledges and gifts that will support and grow the ministry and mission of this community of faith for the coming year. We've welcomed new members. We're about ready to remember and give thanks for the saints of our life on whose shoulders we stand in faith, those who showed us faith in life, those who, with whom showed us what it means to put God first, the people God used in this world to show us kindness and courage and justice and peace. But with all those important things we have already done and are yet to do, the most important thing we're going to do is something we do quite often. We're going to come forward for communion, for the feast to which we've been invited by God. The wrinkle today is that once we've come forward, we're not returning to our pews. We are forming a circle. It will not be a perfect circle. You don't need to get out your GPS to make sure it's perfectly round. It's going to zigzag all through the place, and God will love that. The balcony folks are even being invited down to be in part of the circle. Fair warning up there. When we are in that circle, having tasted the feast, look around at that moment, at the unlikely, passionate, faithful, ragged community that God has formed and is forming among us.
It is the gift of God. In the story of Babette's Feast by Isaac Denison, Babette, a gifted Parisian chef, is banished from Paris because of political turmoil. She washes ashore in a small Danish village where she discovers a fractured and divided religious community. The once tight-knit band of believers have been bickering with one another, nursing grudges, exchanging petty insults, much to the dismay of the two sisters who head up the community. The sisters hire Babette to be their cook, but they ask her to prepare only the blandest foods because that's all anybody is used to eating. One day, Babette learns that she's won the lottery in Paris. She has a new lease on life, an opportunity to start anew, but first, she offers to cook a true feast for the community. The villages are treated to this rare, wonderful, some of the most delicious gourmet fare in the world. Although these religious folks have no idea the true value of Babette's gift to them, during their meal, by sitting down in unlikely community, their community is restored. Past insults, they're forgiven. Grudges are dropped. And at the end of the evening, they join hands and sing the doxology under the stars. It's only after the meal that the sisters discover that Babette spent all the money she won, all of it, to prepare the meal. In doing so, she gave up the opportunity to restore her life. She could not return to Paris and resume as a chef in, in spite of her great talent. She had spent everything on this small, fractious community. And with her sacrifice, and by God's grace, the love of God transformed that community as they sat at table together. In our lives, filled with opportunities, we need to say no to some things to be able to say yes to bigger things, to God's things. What an imprudent choice Babette made unless she understood the urgency of saying yes to God's invitation, unless she understood the urgency to be the community God forms in the kingdom of God. On this day where we recognize the saints of our world and of our lives, it's, it's an unusual collection of people, that communion of saints, but I think there's at least one common denominator. One thing saints understood by their experience and wisdom gained in living a faithful life, by the gift of God, one thing saints understood was that there is no excuse respectable enough or important enough to decline any invitation from God to be community. Because the urgency of this invitation, by it we are invited to the table, we are invited into God's unlikely community, we are invited into God's work to help God in nothing less than to redeem the world. Thanks be to God.